Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. For the last 17 years, the Government Accountability Office has considered strategic human capital management in the federal government to be a high-risk area, and the Defense Department is no exception. Both GAO and the Office of Personnel Management say the government has serious skill gaps in a number of mission-critical occupations. One of those occupations in particular, you could argue, is supercritical, the HR workforce itself, since it's key to managing every other occupation. DOD's own assessment of its HR field is that it's difficult to hire and maintain good HR specialists, and the ones it has are overly burdened by a needlessly complicated web of rules and regulations. The department has a new effort underway to solve those problems under the auspices of what it calls the HR functional community. The community itself has been around, at least on paper, for several years now, but the Pentagon's trying to breathe new life into it. We're going to talk about that this hour with Veronica Hinton. She is the Principal Director for Civilian Personnel Policy within the office of DOD's Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness. She joined me by phone from her office at the Pentagon. Ms. Hinton, thanks for doing this. And as you were telling me a little bit off the air, this is really more of a relaunch than a launch. But but talk with me just, just to open us up a little bit about what the department sees as the need for the functional community for, for HR to begin with. What what sorts of problems are we trying to solve? What sort of gaps are we trying to fill? Oh, thanks, Jared. Um, thank you for having me. And, and we're really excited about this initiative. And re-shining a focus on our HR professional community within the department and a renewed energy around um, preparing them to tackle the complex landscape of HR for the future and the future workforce. And so um, this initiative is really about how we can strengthen our functional community um, so that we can better support our customers across the department. So what I'd like to do is start a little bit to talk about um, what the functional community construct is yeah, please. Um, and why we've chosen to organize that way. So that way it gives uh, listeners some context to uh, what we mean when we say functional community management in the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. And so as, as you know, we have an incredibly diverse and enormous workforce um, currently with 25 functional communities representing over 600 occupational series across the department. And so when we started the functional community construct, it was in response to a, a government accountability office and congressional direction many years ago to strengthen how the federal civilian workforce is strategically managed. And so given the scope and size of our department, empowering our functional communities to best identify at the enterprise level the necessary skills and competencies um, was the, the currently the most effective approach to ensure fair representation and equity across the communities. And it really enabled us, the HR community, to work with the functional communities to um, have appropriate identification um, in setting department-wide priorities for our workforce uh, in the areas of recruitment, retention, and development to meet our DOD priorities. And so we ask our functional community leaders to help us by providing insight and direction regarding mission and workforce requirements across the occupational series within their communities, um, and also review and recommend the appropriate structures and the mission critical occupations and resources to better manage the force. Um, and they also play a critical role along with us in identifying current and future competency and talent requirements necessary for the department to accomplish its priorities. 
So um, that's really the basis for the functional communities. Some of them are more mature than others in executing this construct, but the intent is that each community has robust leadership and governance, workforce and resource planning, and workforce development plans. And that's part of our department's current human capital strategies where we work with the communities to strengthen their abilities to achieve these outcomes. Um, and so this is no different for us as a community, HR as a community, um, and so improving how we manage and develop the department's HR workforce is part of this broader effort. Yeah, would, it, would it be too much of a stretch to say that the, the HR functional community in itself is pretty pivotal to the success of the rest of the functional communities? Because it seems like there's got to be some pretty critical interdependencies there. Absolutely. Um, you know, we have a saying uh, here in the department that you have to put on your own oxygen mask before you can assist others. Right? And so that's no different. Uh, we need to make sure that our HR workforce um, is postured, competent, proficient, um, and ready to assist the other functional communities. That's really the, the whole focus and being for, for why we're here in HR uh, in growing the workforce. And so um, making sure that we've, we are shining the appropriate light on what we're doing to improve the development of our workforce is very pivotal to this whole construct. So talk a bit about, as you said, that the functional community for HR really has been around since 2006. What, what sort of progress have you made since then, and, and what kind of pivot are you making now with this uh, reinvigoration? So as we think about um, what our government HR looks like um, as a framework, um, it's a very you know, kind of complex, archaic system more broadly that really could probably be a subject of its own podcast. Um, so. So from a, a broader context, uh, the government's HR framework is really based on an set, outdated set of human resources laws, regulations, service delivery models, technologies that inhabit, inhibit our ability in HR to manage not only our current workforce, but the workforce of, of the future. And, and the department's HR framework is no different. And so the idea is that as we have this emphasis on uh, through whether the president's management agenda or the secretary's focus on readiness and lethality, as we have uh, focused effort, focused attention on those efforts, we need to focus on um, what does our HR framework look like, and then how do we um, modernize that framework and at the same time modernize our uh, HR community to um, to work within that framework. And so, one of the things that we're doing uh, in terms of this pivot in July is posturing them for the modern HR framework. And so as the government has continued to modernize and transform how it conducts the business of governance, the HR workforce itself has not modernized at the same pace. And even though we've had this functional community for many years, um, we have worked more in a stove-piped manner uh, within the department, and now we're, we're looking at enterprise, intercollaborative, uh, connected effort um, to get us on the path where we want to go to have to design and develop the HR workforce that we need to meet the department's future mission. Uh, right now, our HR workforce is really burdened by the cumbersome complexity of our existing personnel framework, and it's difficult to navigate not only for our customers, but even for even our ex um, experienced human resource practitioners. So that's really what makes it uh, an occupation that we, we consider uh, quote-unquote high risk. Um, we can't do the business of government without people, and we need competent, engaged HR experts to attract, develop, and inspire the next generation of federal talent. And so this 
this initiative uh, around our action plan for developing our HR professionals is related right back to that construct. All right, so let's let's get into the action plan a little bit. I mean, what what does modernization look like, and and what's the early thinking about? What piece parts of this are handled at an enterprise level, at the OSD level, versus down at the component level by the by the individual agencies and commands? So, from a kind of from a broad uh, focus, there's a couple of things that we're focused we're thinking about um, in our action plan. So, as a community, we've tended to focus externally on building the capabilities and capacities of the broader workforce, without the same level of focus on our HR professionals um, who are supposed to be championing innovative, modern, and strategic ways of managing the department's workforce. And we realize we no longer have the luxury to treat HR as this sort of back office function focused solely on compliance and paperwork. The reality is that HR professionals are adjusting to new ways of doing business. Um, and as we work to uh, reform how we develop them, we need them to be able to learn and apply new techniques for attracting and retaining employees of all age, of all ages. And so um, we want our HR professionals to be technical ex experts of, of federal HR regulations, but we also need them to balance that with a new focus on results-driven performance, um, accountability, and, and our ability to, to really be a strategic partner who works alongside other departments to build and maintain a thriving workforce. And so um, one of the areas that we're focusing on in our action plan is, is how do we make this shift? Um, it's not about producing widgets anymore. And for us, our widgets are things like checking the boxes for personnel actions or even the act of hiring where we post an announcement or, or we assess and certify candidates. Those are important things that we do, but now we, need, now we have access to so much data that we can leverage to make evidence-based decisions and design and pursue innovative strategies and assess the effectiveness of our programs and actions that in the future, as we have more automation and artificial intelligence, that's going to take over our widget production and, our, and those things I just mentioned that we're, we're striving towards will be our new widget. Um, and so we say this as, as a means to develop and inspire and challenge, and really we like to say liberate our HR workforce so that they can apply their talents to solving um, kind of those complex thorny HR problems and creating a, a culture, a work culture and defense in which the defense workforce can apply their best talents towards the most important missions of their organizations. And so um, to, to your question of, so how do we do that, right? We have these lofty goals of where we want to go, so, so what does our action plan look like? Um, and how do we make that shift? And so our action plan is focused on five major areas. Um, what we want to do and what's different is we want to be very deliberate and methodical through this effort. Um, we're intending to thoughtfully address how best to tackle the breadth, um, which is the size, and the depth, which is the necessary experience of our HR workforce mission. Um, you know, who's in the community? What do we consider an HR professional? What competencies do we expect them to have? And so by methodically assessing our HR workforce based on what we need, what we have, what skills or gaps we need to further strengthen or develop, and how we credential or certify that talent, we can ensure that we have accountability in this process and that we're achieving the specific outcomes that meet the intent of this plan. Um, this really helps us avoid trying to, to boil the ocean or rush into too many effort to not allow results before claiming success. And so we've had a couple of starts previously um, where we've tried to launch this to, to limited success, and we think this, this new approach, which is, is to really build out um, a very in-depth uh, action plan across five, 
focus areas will help us make sure that we're achieving the outcomes that we want. Um, and the last part to make sure that we actually institutionalize that is a focus area around um, our governance and our policy and stronger expectations and partnerships so that we put a firm structure uh, around all the changes being made across the community. And that really is something that's not a top-down driven uh, initiative from uh, at the enterprise level, from the department level. It's something we're working very collaboratively uh, within our, our community and with our functional communities. Um, it really links us to our customers and our components um, who are determining the enterprise-wide skills and talents that we need and are hiring this talent. And we need to make sure um, that we're serving both their needs as well as our components' needs um, so that they can execute their mission. Um, and that means that we must know not only our business, but our customers' business in order to provide effective service. Veronica Hinton is DOD's Principal Director for Civilian Personnel Policy. We'll come back and talk more about the improvements the department's aiming for through the relaunch of its HR functional community after a short break. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Servid. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Veronica Hinton is with us on this week's show. She is the Defense Department's Principal Director for Civilian Personnel Policy. We're talking about DOD's HR Functional Community, the framework the department is using to reinvigorate its HR workforce. And let, let me return to one of the issues we talked about before the break, which is who's in the community. That, that, that seems pretty foundational to me. I mean, I, I assume it's beyond just the traditional 201 job series, but have you started to bound that in, in any particular way yet? That's Those are exactly the conversations that we're starting to have. Um, as HR has shifted over the years to a more centralized service delivery structure um, and reduced the size of the HR population across the federal space, what we have found, um, not just within the department, but across the federal HR community, that we have seen an outgrowth of individuals not necessarily attached organically to an HR organization. Uh, maybe they're sitting outside a manager's office um, or uh, attached to a hiring manager that are providing those that, that, that level of advice that our customers need to be able to successfully engage the HR system. And so th that's been the conundrum for us as a community is um, you know, who's in the HR umbrella? We want to make sure that those individuals that are liaisoning with us have the appropriate uh, tools that they need to be effective liaisons and understanding of fundamental understanding of some of our key HR provisions. And so um, one of our, our very first things that we're working on is, is getting a handle on um, and really reaching agreement around who are those folks and how do we consider them within our HR community. Um, and as we start to look to what levels of credentials and certification um, that we want, how do we include them in that process? And so um, making sure that they, that we have, quote unquote, a license to, to practice HR um, and that they have some sort of credential um, so that managers can, can feel confident that they're getting the right advice, whether it's from HR proper, um, where they should be coming to for the for the very meaningful, meaty HR uh, subjects and, and context, and that their liaisons um, can help them navigate that to get them to the right places. 
And on, on the building proficiency point, the, the development uh, action plan also talks about credentialing and certification as, as one of the main goals you have here. And I guess I'm just wondering how much of that is specific to the defense HR workforce and how much of it is really just geared at bringing in 21st century HR best practices that are pretty universal to, to the practice of human resources in, in the broader world? Um, I think it's a little bit of both, quite frankly. Um, there, there are, as you say, kind of universal competencies that we would expect any person practicing HR um, in the HR space, um, both private industry as well as in the public sector, to have those business skills around performance management, um, data analysis and analytics, in addition to the technical expertise. I think what makes defense uh, a little different and as we think about certification in defense, not only do we have to have a good understanding, our, do our HR practitioners have to have a good understanding of what it means to do the business of HR broadly, and they have to also understand what it means to do the business of HR within the federal space and the complexity of the various statutes and regulations that we have to maneuver within. But on top of that, we as a department um, have our own authorities that um, we have that we need to make sure that our practitioners um, have a fundamental understanding of how to execute the, the unique flexibilities and authorities that we have as a department and that they can be successful in helping their customers engage and use those authorities and flexibilities to design the workforce um, and the workforce plan that they need to be effective in accomplishing their mission. So, so there is, a, I would say, across the spectrum, um, just a, a little additional need that we have within the Defense Department based on our unique position of having um, additional flexibilities and authorities that aren't necessarily resident um, in the broader HR community. And back to the enterprise versus component point, I mean, it goes without saying that the HR workforce is responsible for hiring basically every sort of profession that exists in the in the broader economy. You can find it somewhere in the Defense Department. So considering the, the wide variability in, in different agencies and, and components' missions, how do you account for that while you're developing an enterprise framework for HR? So... Um we like to say that HR is a team sport um, between HR and its customers, and this initiative is really no different within the HR community. Um, we're using our internal strategic leadership forums, such as um, we have a Defense Civilian Personnel Policy Council, which is comprised of senior HR leadership from across the department to help set the vision and agree to the broad focus areas to achieve it. Um, we've also held multiple rounds of focus groups and visioning sessions to bring in a, a broader voice um, at the component level and across the enterprise to make sure that we're accounting for um, those differences and distinctions and make sure we're all uh, building towards the same outcome. Um, as you alluded to earlier, uh, in July with, with the kind of relaunch of what we're doing, um, we unveiled our action plan framework at our biennial DOD Worldwide HR training event where 250 senior HR experts from across the department came together to train and discuss on the latest HR policies and practices, initiatives to include um, the present and future state of our HR functional community. And so we gave them a call to action to participate in this effort. And I'm excited that they eagerly want to be a part of the process and have committed to sharing their current and best practices in HR business processes, engaging in, in, in our governance efforts, and uh, participating in our five communities of practice um, to help us develop and flesh out the implementation plans. And, and really a key piece is ultimately 
being an advocate for the positive change that we're seeking and then helping uh, to influence from where they sit uh, the change that we're driving towards and to stay committed to it because as we know, change is very hard. So um, we've been working over the past year to get all levels of folks um, engaged and bought in to, to our vision um, so that we can achieve the outcomes, account for the differences, and make sure that we end up where we want to be um, at the end of this journey. So as you move forward with this whole community, what, what, are, the, what are the indicators you're going to be looking at to, to tell you whether any of this is having a beneficial effect? What are the, the metrics, the, the analytics um, that, that you're going to be watching to tell you if you need to change course at all? So um, as we build out the metrics, there's, there's a couple of things we, we're going to be looking at. Um, we're, we're starting to pull the thread around uh, participation and development and getting a handle around what are our um, development avenues for our HR professionals and wanting to make sure that um, we understand what, what, what the development um, framework looks like, what are the opportunities for development, and then are our folks using uh, the development that, that we develop and, and generate uh, for them. Uh, we'll be looking at, in terms of mission outcome, are we seeing an increased usage in um, our flexibilities or our, our um, authorities? So can we see that as we invest more uh, in their development, as we invest more in competencies, how is that translating to output? Uh, in terms of, of being more innovative in um, delivery of HR services and the authorities that were be being given by Congress. Uh, the other area we, we want to do is focus on um, <clears throat> excuse me, how we are engaging in strategic partnerships with not only uh, our federal HR community but also with our customers. And so the idea is that if we're transparent um, in creating a, a, a sharing of best practices collectively where things work well and where they work better, we can find sort of common standardized approaches to our set of complex challenges and we'll be able to see um, if we're actually moving in that direction. And then our non-HR customers should be able to see more engaged and inclusive strategic workforce planning from us um, across a wide range of occupations, skills, and talents, um, and be able to provide a more efficient and effective HR program. And that's whether um, we're improving time to hire, whether our satisfaction with the HR community is, is increasing, um, whether we're seeing a more productive work, a workforce, uh, a stronger ability to meet the demands of leadership. Um, those are all different metrics that we're currently considering um, and that we're capturing in our um, human capital operating plan, which lays out our goals and priorities for the next couple of years, those are the metrics that we're going to be looking at to see if, if this action plan to strengthen our competencies is resulting in actual outcomes and outputs to strengthen more broadly the defense's human capital enterprise. It's probably way too early for you to answer this question, but but you mentioned early on in the conversation uh, today that the entire legal superstructure around federal HR is is getting a little creaky, and I'm I'm just wondering if uh, if you would expect there to be any kind of legislative proposals coming out of this whole effort asking Congress to to, to modernize the the legal system that we use for HR in the federal government. Um, I think it's too early right now in the process, but what I will share is that um, I, I think you've heard probably a very similar refrains and messaging from across um, 
human resource, human capital leaders from across the government as well as the administration is that we have a very complex, burdensome um, HR outdated, I may add, HR system um, and personnel system that really just inhibits effective management of the workforce. And so um, no differently would I expect uh, going forward to, to see that message to continue to, to kind of that drumbeat to continue to be out there um, and that may translate into legislative proposals. But at this point, um, it's still early for us to, to um, indicate what, if anything, specifically uh, we may be pursuing as a department. Okay. And then I guess last question, back on the metrics that we talked about before, at, at what point do you think you'll start to have some, some meaningful feedback on how things, how things are going and whether you've accomplished some of the goals that you have here? Um, our goal is um, really in FY19, the Worldwide in July was to, to, to present the plan and to, to present the structure um, and through 19 to actually start um, actions associated with it and, and the outcome is by um, FY20 to actually have our competency assessments um, and be able to identify skills gaps that we can start to close. So I would say, um, you know, within FY19, we'll start to have our initial tranche of metrics that we're tracking to, um, and then we'll continue to expand those as we progress into 20 and beyond. Our HR workforce, as I mentioned, is really burdened by cumbersome complexity of our framework, and so we are really striving to help them navigate what we currently have prepare them for the future to manage a future workforce and a future uh, structure, a personnel system, um, and to make sure that they're p positioned to work on um, the most important work um, and make the best contribution they can to the most important functions within the HR framework um, and the HR function. And so um, we're very excited about uh, the work that we're doing. Um, we're plugged into the work that uh, the Office of Personnel Management is doing and the Chief Human Capital Officers Council is doing as well in this space. And um, collectively, uh, very excited about the progress that we anticipate that we're going to make um, that's going to translate for our customers, right? Better customer service. And that's what this is about, is better customer service, building and meeting the needs of um, our functional communities and our customers to make sure that they have the workforce they need to get the mission of the department done. So um, more to come, but but uh, can't be more pleased and more excited about where we're going. Veronica Hinton is DOD's Principal Director for Civilian Personnel Policy. She joined us from the Pentagon to talk about the Defense Department's newly relaunched HR functional community. Another short break here, and when we come back, we will switch topics from HR to procurement. James Gertz, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition, joins us. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Survey. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And for the balance of the show, we're going to feature a couple of our interviews from Federal News Radio's coverage of this year's Modern Day Marine Expo in Quantico, Virginia. First up, the top procurement official for the Navy and Marine Corps. James Gertz is the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition. He talked about his priorities with my colleague Scott Massioni. So everything we're doing is in support of the National Defense Strategy. And, and that strategy is really about us competing and winning as a nation. And to, to do that, I think, for the Department of the Navy, kind of my four priorities, the first one is deliver and sustain lethal capacity. 
So making sure we're getting the right gear out to the folks uh, downrange, making sure we can support them as we go forward, and then looking for new and creative ways uh, to do that as we, uh, as we look to the future. The second is really getting our agility up. I call it pivot speed. How do we uh, you know, reduce our iteration time, I'll be able to prototype things more quickly, and then the things that are useful get into the field really quickly? How do we increase the different ways we can contract or to bring other players into the, uh, into the mix? That's kind of my second one. Third one really is driving out cost. Uh, you know, these weapon systems are expensive. Uh, they're expensive to buy. They're expensive to operate. Um, and so what are the creative ways we can work with industry and create those win-wins where industry can bring in new solutions that reduces costs, uh, we can remain effective, and then we can turn those funds into other capabilities that we need to field. And then finally, not because it's last, because it's actually most important, is talent, right? How do we develop the talent? How do we harness the great talent in the U.S. Uh, to help our military in, in all its different forms? And so that's both how do we recruit and, uh, and train and retain folks in the service as well as in our industry, because there's not many things we do in terms of acquisition that doesn't involve our industry partners. So they also have to have a healthy uh, talent development ecosystem. So Congress over the past two or three years has given you some uh, flexibility, mm-hmm. some different things that you can do. Have you been able to leverage that, even though I know that you really haven't had much time to really take advantage of them, but have you been able to leverage them and plan to in the future? Yeah, so Congress has been really, really uh, powerful over the last couple of years in giving us lots of new tools. Uh, and so that that's really productive for us. Uh, and again, let's just help get after those four things I'm after. Our biggest challenge is how do we perfect those tools and get the workforce trained uh, so the workforce is comfortable using lots of different tools and can pick the right tool for the job. So my main focus this year really is getting that workforce comfortable and proficient in all the different tools we have so that they can pick the right tool to get the job done. We have plenty of authorities. Uh, We just need to get our proficiency up so that then uh, us and our industry partners can really use these tools uh, to new advantage, to take cycle time out, to reduce an non-value-added effort, uh, to reduce uh, barriers that are keeping some of the kind of up-and-coming startup companies from wanting to, you know, normally they wouldn't want to do work with the government. Government can be a great, great partner uh, as long as we can remove some of those bureaucratic hurdles. That takes a trained workforce, that takes an empowered workforce, takes a mission-focused workforce, uh, and that's really where I'm focusing this year. And I know that Spa War, speaking of mm-hmm. the authorities, they've already created a consortium mm-hmm. that can use OTAs, right. which are other transaction authorities. Um, how is the Navy trying to leverage those, and where are they appropriate within the Navy? Yeah, so I've given authority to all of our system commands uh, to, to write their own OTAs, up to $100 million. Uh, and so part of my challenge to those leaders is, in their particular environment, what's the right OTA for the job they have in hand? So Spa War's done some on information warfare, our undersea uh, warfare centers done some for under, uh, undersea technologies. And quite frankly, there's other great ones across the department that we might just leverage uh, rather than create one of our own. And so, uh, again, I think it depends on the mission area, but we need to have that full tool set available uh, so that we can rapidly prototype and rapidly test stuff and take some of the time and cost out of looking at new products uh, and getting them in the hands of our warfighters. Now, it's hard to go to any conference without hearing OTA, right? Yep. And and uh, it it has a lot of things that, that are going for it that's making things go fast, but it also has some, some issues when it comes to oversight and transparency. Mm-hmm. How are you ensuring that you're uh, using the taxpayers' money effectively and, and making yeah. sure that, that 
that's something they can trust you on. Yeah, sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's why I'm in this position, right, is to, to look out for the taxpayer and ensure uh, we are both delivering effectively as well as uh, with confidence. And so OTAs, I think, are a tool. Mm-hmm. They're not the perfect tool for every job, just like the hammer isn't the perfect tool for a screw. Um, but if you don't have a hammer, some jobs you can't do. And so I look at OTAs as one of many tools we need to perfect. Uh, prize challenges are great tools. Cooperative R&D agreements are great tools. Small business innovative research contracts are great tools. And then really train and hold the workforce accountable for using, being knowledgeable, and then using all those tools in the appropriate manner uh, to, de- to deliver. And traditional contracting can be a very effective and fast tool if set up the right way. So it's not really an either-or, it's an either-and from my perspective. Right. Uh, it's just another tool we've got to be proficient at. Uh, you know, I'm making sure we have the right oversight uh, so that we aren't using the tool in an inappropriate manner. Uh, but the biggest issue to that is really training the workforce. And then once they're trained, then, then we can hold them accountable. Now, when it comes to, to cyber, that's something that DOD's been thinking about a, a ton. And right. the Navy, I mean, you know, you had the whole cyber awakening mm-hmm. not that long ago. What is your acquisition department doing to uh, secure cyber and to stay ahead of the game in cyber? Yeah, a huge issue and, and, and a very complex issue. And it's, it's also not a one-size-fits-all issue. And so we've been uh, working really close with our industry partners. It takes a couple things. One is identifying the data that we want to protect at what level. And making sure we're doing a good job of that. And then secondly, creating the right tools and policies so that we proactively put the safeguards in place uh, to protect the data we need to protect at the appropriate level. So we're working really closely uh, with our program executive offices. They all have tasks for me to go review uh, how we're protecting data through all their programs. Uh, And then you're going to see policy for me coming out uh, to make sure that we've got those terms appropriately uh, placed on the contracts as we go forward or the existing contracts to ensure we can protect that data. Now, if we can't protect the data, then, again, we're just giving up a competitive advantage, uh, and that's not something we're very interested in doing. How are you tackling the supply chain issue? You know, yeah. there's a lot of uh, things going on with, with foreign-made objects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, how are you fitting that into you? Yeah, and another really important, both from uh, do we have confidence in the financial aspects of those suppliers as well as the technical aspects of those suppliers. And so I think, you know, in the coming age, the, the digital age provides us a lot of really, really great opportunities, provides some risk, right? right? And so we've got to look at how do we manage the risk without um, obviating that, that opportunity that will present. 3D printing is a great way to shrink down supply chains, and especially if we're operating forward with 3D printers on ships, can be a great opportunity. But if we don't have confidence in the data, that we don't understand or we're not sure it's protected, then then that can negate the opportunity. So we're looking at both sides of that equation. So Congress almost, almost at this point, has gotten you the money that you need uh, for 2019, yeah. and this is the first time in a long time it'll be on schedule. How does that help you? What is that doing for you at this point? Yeah, so Congress has been been a great partner for the last couple of years. It really, you know, recognized that we were uh, not where we needed to be in terms of lethal and ready as a, as a military uh, and took that on uh, to, to a very, you know, very challenging uh, to bring the budgets where they needed to be. Uh, and so I give them great credit both last year and now this year, not only the budget, but delivering the budget on time, it looks like, uh, is, uh, is really good. What that allows us to do then is uh, really create good, effective business deals. Uh, when you're in a continuing resolution, you can get into kind of starting and stopping or only going part way, and then you lose some efficiency 
both from you have to do the work multiple times as well as if you're a contractor, you know, it's hard on a workforce planning perspective when the work starts or stops or doesn't start at the time you expected. Right. You know, my charge of the team is how do we accelerate and take advantage of the great opportunity Congress looks like it will do by passing the budget uh, on time so that we can accelerate, right, and not have to do our normal delay of several months to getting those efforts uh, ongoing. Ultimately, what it's going to mean is we can deliver for the warfighter more effectively and more uh, more quickly, uh, which is great for our national defense. Now, I know you're just getting 19 sewn up and everything, yep. but uh, 2020 and beyond, where are your priorities lying and, and uh, you know, what, what might we see some investments in? Yeah, I, again, I think my overall priorities are kind of the same. Uh, are we delivering? Are we, are we agile? Are we taking advantage of opportunities? Are we trying to be as cost-effective and reform? And then uh, ultimately, are we, uh, are we focused on the talent? Uh, all of those are long-haul activities. They don't get solved in a week or a month or even a year. And so you're going to see me continuing to try and accelerate. Uh, as I said in my, in my presentation, I think the trajectory is really uh, powerful and in the right direction. Now you're going to see me trying to accelerate the velocity at which we can improve and deliver for the warfighter. James Gertz is the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition. He spoke with Federal News Radio's Scott Massioni at the Modern Day Marine Expo in Quantico, Virginia. More of our coverage from that show after one last break. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbio. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And for our final few minutes, we return to our coverage of the Modern Day Marine Expo in Quantico, Virginia. Federal News Radio Scott Massioni talked with senior leaders and Marines at the conference, including one former Marine who's just finished running more than 800 miles in 31 days using two prosthetic legs. Retired Marine Corps Sergeant Rob Jones told Scott he did it to show that wounded does not mean broken. I trained for a year and a half, and, you know, it went smoothly. It, it, I started in London, and then from London I flew to Philadelphia, and then I went basically from Philadelphia in a counterclockwise circle, hitting uh, 31 total cities uh, and finished in Washington, D.C. on Veterans Day. So since we're on radio, I'll point out that you have you lost both of your legs, and would you mind just kind of giving us a little bit about your, your injury? Yeah, sure. I was a combat engineer uh, in the Marine Corps, and, uh, combat engineers are primarily tasked with uh, using explosives to breach obstacles and also clearing safe routes through uh, danger areas that have a high likelihood of containing IEDs in them. And so, you know, long story short, I was attempting to clear a route through a danger area uh, on July 22, 2010, when you know the IED found me that day instead of me finding it. Right. And that resulted in a double above knee amputations. So you had a process of, of getting back to uh, regular strength, right? And mm -hmm. then also becoming this ultra marathoner, really. So what goes into just practicing something like this? I mean, that's that's an amazing amount. It's hundreds of miles that you just ran in one month. Yeah, 812, I think it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it all started from the tourniquets being put on my legs. So you got to save my life first. I have to survive it first. Sure. And then the recovery came next. And so relearning how to walk. Uh, it took about a year till I was really comfortable walking everywhere I went. And then at that point, I started kind of doing extracurricular stuff like learning how to run, learning how to ride a bicycle, learning sports and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then after that, you know, it just kind of takes 
time to you know develop the movement patterns and strengthen you know parts of your body that aren't are being used in a different way than they're used to being used because my running gait i swing my legs to the outside of my body Mm -hmm. instead of bringing them underneath me and so when i was training for the month marathons i'd already actually been an athlete for five years so i had that kind of base behind me and then what i kind of tried to focus on was just really thickening my connective tissues so that they could withstand the pounding you know day after day after day for 26 miles and on top of that making sure i was uh fat adapted so i was able to uh burn fat for fuel really efficiently right um and then on top of that i had to train my cardiovascular system so i basically did this thing called cardiovascular efficiency training where i kept my heart rate under 150 every every single training session and so what that does is it makes you more it makes you faster at the same heart rate Gotcha. So I kind of it makes your heart and lungs more efficient. Now you you mentioned this wounded does not mean broken, right? And um, you know I think something when people came back from Vietnam that was kind of something that ended up being a stigma, and there was a lot of uh, veterans that that had to deal with a lot of issues with right. those that kind of thing. Um, how has that empowered you? And and what's like the the whole message that you're really looking for there? Right. Well, yeah, there is this there. So there is a stigma with mental injuries or psychological injuries Mm -hmm. but there isn't a stigma with physical injuries and so i guess my whole point or one of the things i've come to know is that they're both injuries and they're both things that happen to certain people and don't happen to other people and so there's really no shame in you know suffering a mental injury because you're the only one that's experienced everything that you've experienced in your life and it's just a little bit more of a complicated issue you know with a physical injury you either get shot or you don't or you step on an ied or, or you don't Right. Whereas with a mental or psychological injury, it's kind of, it's a, it's a, the brain is so much more complicated. We don't even understand exactly how it works. So there is that stigma, but I don't really think it's a deserved stigma. Um, but, uh, yeah. Tell me about the people that you met along the way in these 31 cities. I mean, were they inspired? Where did you have a, a people cheering you on? You know, how did, how did this work out for you? So I had uh, like event bite pages and Facebook pages and stuff for each of my races, and I would put it out there. You know, I'm going to be running, uh, say, in New York City. I'm going to be starting from here, and I'm going to be running loops of this. I ran loops of the Harlem Mirror in uh, in Central Park, and I would put that out on the event bite page, and people would sign up, and I would show up, and I would start running. And and when I came out of the the RV in the morning, well, which is how I was getting from from race to race or run to run. There would always be, you know, a big group of people there waiting to run with me, yeah, uh, because they believed in what I was doing and they believed in they wanted to come out and show that they love veterans. And so the more people I got every day, the more evidence we we put to that assertion. And yeah, they would. Uh, most people wouldn't run the whole thing. They would run, you know, just like one chunk and then they'd be done, or they might run two chunks or whatever it may be. But when the times got tough, it was, for example, in San Antonio, uh, it was particularly hot, and I was struggling that day yeah. uh, for my first 12 kilometers. And for my second, third, and fourth loops, these trainees from the uh, combat controllers course close by came out, and they ran with me, and they sang canes and stuff, so it really helped me out. So every time I had somebody running with me, it was really helpful. That's great. It's like a 
much more meaningful Forrest Gump moment, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was a little bit more articulate than him, I hope. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, so tell me about times when it was when it was hard. I mean, you just you just mentioned, you know, running in San Antonio where it's really hot. I mean, were there ever points where you're just like, I can't go on anymore? Yeah. You know, I, uh, I kind of figured when I first started that London was going to be my best marathon, my fastest marathon. And then after that, it was basically just going to be me trying to stave off deterioration of my body. And, you know, in D.C., I was going to be crawling across the line, <laughs> yeah. you know, just totally destroyed. But as it turned out, you know, the first four days kind of did go. And by my 10th marathon, my 10th one was my fastest one. Hmm. And then after that was in Chicago. And then after that, I kind of just maintained this capability and this pace. I maintained pace for almost the whole way around. And so that surprised me. But uh, that's how, you know, you can adapt to just about anything. Um, but when I got to Texas, I had been pretty lucky with all the weather up until Texas, and then Texas uh, hit San Antonio and Houston back to back, and then Dallas. But San Antonio and Houston were both very hot, very humid. I just hit a during a heat wave, and so that does tend to, you know, amputees that we get hot easily, and we it's a little bit harder for us to cool off because we don't have as much surface area. Right. And so the heat does take it out of me. So those two days were really tough. But, you know, I made it through because I had people come out. And I think I had uh, Marine recruiters with all their pulleys there um, in both cities. And, and then the combat controller guys came out. And then just all the supporters. Uh, but then the last four races were a little bit more difficult because in Nashville, I slipped on a wet wooden bridge and I injured my back. Mm. Uh, I don't know what I did. I never actually went to a doctor, but... Uh, all I knew was when I landed on my left foot, my back would kind of really hurt really bad in the lower back area. And so that made the last four pretty tough. What kind of challenges do you have differently than a regular runner may have, you know, with someone who has both of their, their legs? Um, you mentioned the heat and, and then also, mm-hmm. um, you know, your gait a little bit. Uh, what other things do you have to keep in mind? Yeah, you know, I think it's just a, it's a little bit easier for me to trip. Mm-hmm. The, my running technique is different, but the principle of how I run is essentially the same. You're planting your foot, and you're using the rest of your body to drive off of that foot and, and propel yourself forward. I'm still doing that just like everybody else. But when I bring my leg around, I bring it to the outside. They bring it underneath of them. Right. And since my prosthetic works like a spring, I have to be very careful about which surfaces I run on. So I can really only run on hard-packed surfaces. I can kind of run on grass. Uh, but it's a really not very efficient. And then um, I have to make sure I have, you know, a wide berth on either side of me. So I can't really run on mountain trails because I'd be tripping all over the place. Um, and then I have to be careful of undulating ground. Or uh, like one time there was a, not on the month of marathons, but when I was training, there was a, a sewer grate that was sticking out. And I caught my foot on that and I did a front flip and, you know, Ooh. and fell. Yeah. So I just have to be a little bit more careful of that kind of stuff. What kind of medical staff and, and science went into this? I mean, are you using the, the classic uh, prosthetics, or did you have something specially made for you? Uh, no, I was using just the standard uh, prosthetic running foot that they that you know I used uh, ever since I started. I relearned how to run. My sockets are kind of the more the most important thing in this uh, in the whole setup, and that's because they have to be. They're what connect me to the prosthetic foot, and so. I needed to make sure that those were extremely comfortable, as, as comfortable as I could possibly get them. You know, I went, my prosthetist is in Denver. He used to work at Walter Reed. Now he works in Denver. And so I went out to him, and we, we made these legs to make sure they were nice and, and comfortable. And I would – there's these little sock things that you can put on to make your 
stump thicker in certain parts. So I just made sure it was it was comfortable every day, and then I actually used uh, chamois cream underneath of the the prosthetic in order to minimize any kind of friction. That's retired Marine Corps Sergeant Rob Jones talking with Federal News Radio's Scott Massioni at the Modern Day Marine Corps Expo in Quantico, Virginia. Also on this week's show, we heard from James Gertz, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition, and Veronica Hinton, DOD's Principal Director for Civilian Personnel Policy. If you missed those conversations, this week's full show will be available to listen back to anytime at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD or in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD with Federal News Radio DoD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DoD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.